Reading this morning from Isaiah 28, 1 through 6. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest. Like a storm of mighty, overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Thanks. Morning. Hey, thanks for your patience. For those of you who are used to sitting on the wings, it's really great having you all together. But if you want your old seat back, all you have to do is invite a few more people. So we need those seats. So it's all in your hands, okay? David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, who also his column runs in the Idaho Statesman, was struck by the change in culture that he observed over the last 50 to 75 years or so. And he describes that change as being from the little me to the big me. (laughs) The little me to the big me culture. What does he mean by that? Well, one of the things he noticed is after World War II, which was an amazing victory, he observed some things. He says the Allies had just completed one of the noblest military victories in human history. And yet there was no chest beating. Nobody was erecting triumphal arches. Bing Crosby, the host of a celebration show, essentially, said this, well, it looks like this is it. (laughs) What can you say at a time like this? I guess all anybody can do is thank God it's over. Today, our deep-down feeling is one of humility. So that's what he observed after World War II. But then, as he began to think about what our culture is now, that was the little me. It was much more about, I'm part of something bigger than myself, to the big me of today, which is, I am the center of the universe. He began to collect data. He says, over the next few years, I collected data to suggest that we have seen a broad shift from a culture of humility to the culture of what you might call the big me, from a culture that encouraged people to think humbly of themselves to a culture that encouraged people to see themselves as the center of the universe. It wasn't hard to find such data. For example, between 1948 and 1954, psychologists asked more than 10,000 adolescents whether they considered themselves to be very important person, a very important person. At that point, 12% said yes. 
The same question was revisited in 1989, and this time it wasn't 12% who considered themselves very important. It was 80% of boys and 77% of girls. Along with this apparent rise in self-esteem, there's been a tremendous increase in the desire for fame. He goes on to say that fame used to rank low as the life's ambition for most people. A 1976 survey asked people to list their life goals. Fame was listed 15th out of 16 options. By 2007, 51% of young people reported that being famous was one of their top personal goals. As I looked around the popular culture, I kept finding the same messages everywhere. You're special. Trust yourself. Be true to yourself. Movies from Pixar and Disney are constantly telling children how wonderful they are. Commencement speeches are larded with the same cliches. Follow your passion. Don't accept limits. Chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are so great. This, he says, is the gospel of self-trust. But this making ourselves the center of the universe, this gospel of self-trust, has dire consequences from the Bible's point of view. (laughs) You see, this kind of pride, dependence on self, ends up leading us into frustration and spiritual death. But let me say this is not new. It may be more emphasized in our current culture, but it's always been there, right? This is exactly what's happening in our passage today as we look at the nation of Israel around 720 B.C., especially among the leaders. The leaders were making themselves the center of their universe. They were living by pride, and this was causing them and all the people to be unfruitful. In fact, their culture was rotting from the inside out. So Isaiah challenges their thinking. Isaiah comes to say, look, your pride is doing you harm. And as he challenges his people, he also challenges us today. He challenges us to not live by pride, but rather to understand the true gospel, not the gospel of self, but the true gospel which encourages us to live lives of humility, trusting God rather than self. Pray with me. Lord, as we look together at this, we confess that all of us have bought into this me culture, this big me, where we want to be the center of the universe. So as we look together today into your word, Lord, may your spirit convict us of where We need perhaps to change, to learn humility rather than living by pride. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, do your work in us today. We submit and surrender ourselves to you. Amen. So I want to highlight several problems with pride that we see in Isaiah chapter 28. The first is that pride wilts over time. First verse of chapter 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. What's the crown? The crown here that he's addressing specifically is the king, the king of Ephraim, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And it says the people were trusting in this crown to take care of them. And they and the leaders were swollen with pride. Now, I think it's worth really thinking through what is pride. And again, David Brooks, I think, has some things to say about it that I think are a good description that help us understand what pride is. He says this, what is pride? These days, the word pride has positive connotations. It means feeling good about yourself and the things associated with you. When we use it negatively, we think of the arrogant person, someone who's puffed up and egotistical, boasting and strutting about. But that's not really the core of pride. That's just one way the disease of pride presents itself. By another definition, pride is building your happiness around your accomplishments, using your work as the measure of your worth. It's believing that you can arrive at fulfillment on your own, driven by your own individual efforts. And then he contrasts a couple of ways that this manifests itself. Pride can come in bloated form. This person wants people to see visible proof of his superiority. He wants to be on the VIP list. In conversation, he boasts, he brags. He needs to see his superiority reflected in other people's eyes. He believes that this feeling of superiority will eventually bring him peace. That version of pride is familiar, he says. But there's another version. There are other proud people who have low self-esteem. They feel they haven't lived up to their potential. They feel unworthy. They want to hide and disappear, to fade into the background and nurse their own hurts. We don't associate them with pride, but they are still at root. And I think this is brilliant, what he says here. They are still at root, suffering from the same disease. They are still yoking happiness to accomplishment. It's just that they are giving themselves a D minus instead of an A plus. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Pride can look a lot of different ways, including it can look like so low self-esteem. It's just we're giving ourselves a D minus rather than an A plus. I think what he's beginning to get to is that pride really what it at bottom is this idea that it's about me, what I accomplish. I'm depending on myself. I, in verse 1, accomplish this fertile valley. I accomplish the success of Israel. I'm the one who's in charge. I made it happen. It's my doing. That is pride. That's self-dependence. But notice what it says in verse 1. It says, the fading flower of the crown, this glorious crown. It's a glorious place of leadership, but it's a fading flower. Why? Because of the pride. When you live by your own pride, you become over time more and more insecure because you can't keep pulling it off. You see, for a while, it looks good. It looks like you're making it. I I can do this if I just pull myself up by my own bootstraps. But eventually it stops working and you find that you can't make life work. You can't pull it off. You cannot do it. And so it begins to fade and you get more and more insecure. You have to work harder and harder to get and keep people's favor. You always have others who can outdo you. You become jealous of others and it wilts. Think of King Saul in the Bible who God put in a position as king of Israel. But 
as he looked at David and David had slain his ten thousands and Saul only his thousands, Saul became more and more jealous because it was all about him. He was the center of the universe. It was big me that it was all about. And what happened is he became angry and had to try to kill David and wipe him out because he was in the way of Saul's sense of self. And the result was it essentially drove Saul mad and he was removed from the kingship. One of the problems of pride is it wilts, it doesn't work, it fades. Secondly, pride makes us drunk. (laughs) You see that in verse 1. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Verse three, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. Notice down in verse seven. These these leaders also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a pretty graphic image, isn't it? My question is, why does he use this analogy for the leadership of Israel of the day? Were they getting drunk? Well, you know what? They probably were (laughs) Uh, some, but I I think it's an analogy for him. I think he's saying that drunkenness is a picture for us of giving in to self-indulgence, giving in to excess. It's choosing to numb the pain of life and do whatever feels good. You may use alcohol, but you may use a lot of other things. Entertainment, pleasure of all kinds, getting caught up in social media because it feels good, drugs, whatever. You know, you can fill yourself self-indulgently with all kinds of things when you put pleasure first. What Isaiah is so upset about is these were the leaders of Israel, and instead of serving the people that they were leading. They were engaging in self-indulgence. They saw their leadership as an opportunity to get for themselves. They were focused on themselves. They were focused on their own pleasure. They were essentially saying, I want to feel good. I want to party, so I will give in to my desires. My leadership is to benefit me. And see, ultimately, this is an expression of pride. I will do what I want for me, no matter what the consequences in other people's lives. These leaders were facing this huge Assyrian threat that was threatening to come down and wipe out the northern kingdom. The leaders should have been leading the people and protecting them and finding a way to seek God for his protection. But instead, what are they doing? They're engaging in whatever feels good to themselves. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die. So what happens? Really a powerful picture in verse 7 where it says, rather than, uh, it says they reel with strong drink, they are swallowed by wine. Isn't that an interesting twist that Isaiah throws out there? That rather than swallowing wine to feel good, the wine actually swallows you. When you give in to your desires, when you give in to self-indulgence, In a prideful way, I will do what I want to feel good, no matter what God or anyone else says. 
What happens is that desire, those things that you give yourself to, swallow you. (laughs) You think you're swallowing them, but they swallow you and control you and take over your life. I think the Apostle Paul may be thinking of this very passage when in Ephesians chapter 5, he says in verse 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, he tells the Ephesians, for that's wasteful but be filled with the Spirit. You see, when you give way to wine or anything else, you give yourself over, then you, you're wasting your life instead of being filled with the Spirit and letting your life be controlled by Him. So pride makes us want to feel good, and so we give in to our self-indulgent desires. It makes us drunk. And the result, he says, is that you reel through life, you stagger through life, you're useless, you you can't do the things that you should be able to do. You end up making a mess of things. That's what pride does. And it blinds you to reality. I had a friend once tell me, you know what, I'm actually a better driver when I'm drunk. I said, really? How's that? Well, I'm much more careful. You see, when you give in to self-indulgence, what does it do? It just blinds you to reality. You can't even see the truth anymore. And unfortunately, we have had so many fall morally and so many pastors fall morally in our community in recent days, in other churches. It's, and we've had it happen here in our church. I'm not exempting us. I'm just saying pride goes before a fall, right? Pride leads you to a place of where you're feeding your own desires and you end up doing harm to yourself and to others. But note the contrast in verse 5 and 6. Let me read that again. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. It's a beautiful picture of what God has provided for us. True leadership only comes from Yahweh and from his Messiah. He gave us Jesus as the true crown of glory, the only righteous leader. And his leadership truly is glorious and beautiful and just. And it says he gives strength to his people who follow him as leader and trust in him. So what is God saying? He's saying, Don't give way to your own desires because that's giving way to pride. But instead, learn to trust not in your earthly leaders or in yourself, but learn to trust in God, in Jesus as your leader, which means you have to come in humility to one who is so much greater than you and submit your life to him. But when you do that, life is not about drunkenness. It's about fruitfulness. But the next point I want to highlight is that pride makes us fruitless. If you continue to give way to pride, it will make you fruitless. I already read verse 7 and 8, but let me read verse 8 again. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Do I need to read that verse again? No, okay. I wondered. You see, here's the tragic picture that Isaiah is painting here. He's describing the prophets and the priests of Israel. These are the ones that were meant 
to be the go-betweens between the people and God, to feed the people the word of God so that they would be strong and able to handle the things that come their way in life. But it says because they're giving into self-indulgence and pride, what happens is rather than filling the tables with food of the word of God and his truth, what are they filling all the tables with? Vomit. You see, they were giving way to pride. And the problem was in this gross picture is they're not able to help anyone. Pride does that. When we make ourselves the center of the universe, we end up promoting ourselves and we end up feeding ourselves rather than other people. All they get is the vomit leftovers. It's true in any relationship for any of us. Take, take a close friendship. If you come into that friendship with an idea that, okay, this is about me and you're there to meet my needs and take care of me, What do you end up offering to the person? Nothing good. But if you come with an attitude of humility that I want to serve you and build you up and make you become all that God created you to be, then you can feed them with the words of life. It's true in a friendship, in a marriage, in any kind of relationship, even a parenting relationship. It's all about being there for the other person, being willing to serve. When we try to force our agendas on relationships, we end up fruitless. So we have to ask the question, what are we serving up to others? A table full of care and love, a feast, pointing them to Jesus, speaking to them in words of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, encouraging them in their walking, walk with the Lord? Or are we feeding them vomit? An agenda that you need to meet my needs. You see, that's what pride does, and it makes us fruitless in life. And the final point I want to make about pride from this passage is pride turns us into scoffers. Pride turns us into scoffers. Notice verse 9. These are the people talking, and I think they're making fun of Isaiah. They're mocking Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge? (laughs) And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, little babies, for it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. You see, essentially what they're saying in the Hebrew, here a little, there a little, it's tzav letzav, kav lekav, tzav letzav, kav lekav. You see what they're saying? Yada, 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 blah, 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 blah. Isaiah, you know, we're more sophisticated. We know all that stuff, Isaiah, about God, blah, blah, blah. Stop trying to teach us. We don't want to hear from you. You see, pride makes you unteachable. It makes you think you're so sophisticated that you can't hear the simple truths that God wants us to take deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts. They're unwilling to listen. And then over in verse 14 and 15, listen to it. It says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you've said, we've made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood, we have taken shelter. He calls them scoffers. Now, 
In the Bible, there's some pretty strong words for sinful people, right? Sinners is a strong word. The wicked is a strong word. But you know what the most condemning word in all the Old Testament is? Scoffers. Scoffers. Scoffers are those who scoff at God, who are critical of everyone else and put others down to feed their own egos and their own pride. They're the height of wickedness in the Bible. They make a covenant with death, he says. Now, I'm not, I don't think they're actually literally doing that, but I think what, they're, what he's saying, Isaiah's trying to get through to them to help them understand that when you, when you have that attitude of, I'm number one and I can put everyone else down and I can put, mock at God, God, you don't know what's best. I'm going to run my own life my way. That essentially you are making a covenant with death. You are headed in a very dangerous direction. And it says they use lies. It's a lie foundationally to say, I can handle my own life. I can run it my way. So your life is founded on lies right from the beginning. These are the kind of people who rely on alternative facts (laughs) where the truth really doesn't matter anymore. So it says they're trying to make their lives secure safe and secure, but they're relying on the wrong things, death and lies. And they reflect our culture today because one thing I've observed is that we live in a culture of scoffing. So many today feel free to criticize anyone they don't agree with. Now, it's okay to disagree, right? That's fine if you believe that. But when we criticize and put down and condemn others for thinking differently than us, that is scoffing. And I just want to share my heart with you this morning. I'm really concerned about the church, including our church in America today. Unfortunately, many of us as believers have bought into this culture of scoffing. We think it's okay to put almost anything we agree with on social media, to post and repost it, to like things and forward things that are critical of someone else, including our new president, that scoff at our world in an arrogant way. And somehow the anonymity, supposed anonymity of social media makes us feel it's okay to do that. I'm not really condemning other people. Yes, you are. When you do that, you're a scoffer. You've bought into this arrogance that feels like you can criticize other people. And I hear this as I talk to brothers and sisters, but I'm just trying to get the truth out there. Truth is a good thing. But it's a very fine line between sharing truth and condemning others. And when we do that, we've bought into this culture of scoffing that the scriptures condemn, and we have to be very careful. Are you really getting the truth out there in a way that people can hear it that helps them know you love them and you want them to know the truth? Or are you becoming a scoffer, arrogantly putting others down so that you feel better about yourself and your own position? That's pride. And that's evil. And God says if we do it, here's what I will do. Verse 11 For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, tav lakav, tav lakav. 
He says, if you won't hear from me and really listen to me, I will take you into exile. I will force you to live under foreign tongues. I will make life painful for you. Because if you won't be humbled before me, then I will have to humble you. The words of C.S. Lewis, you've heard them before, but very powerful. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And if we will not humble ourselves before God, then he will humble us through pain because he loves us too much. You see, his antidote to, pain, to pride is given in verse 16 and 17. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. God's antidote to, provide, to, to pride is to provide a foundation stone, a cornerstone. Who is that? It's Jesus, right? This verse is quoted several times in the New Testament describing Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives. He's the only sure foundation. And when you come to him and you look to him and you depend on him, what happens? You're humbled. (laughs) You realize it's not about you. It's about him. He is the center of the universe. I am not. And when you begin to get a vision of him and look to him and begin to see Jesus clearly for who he is, what happens? Well, remember what happened to Job as he got a clear vision of Jesus. (laughs) Job 42, verse 5 and 6. I had heard of you by hearing by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you as God revealed himself to him. Therefore, I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. What about Isaiah? And we could go to many passages, but Isaiah earlier in chapter 6, as he gets a heavenly vision of who God is, what's his response in verse 5? As he sees, gets an amazing picture of who God is. Verse 5, he says, And I said, Whoa, I am an awesome dude. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people. It ain't just me (laughs) of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The antidote to pride is to get a clearer vision of Jesus. How do we get that? Read the word. But don't just read the word, but come to it in a way with an open heart that says, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Give me a fresh vision of you. Help me to see who you are. If you haven't read the book of John for a while, read the book of John and ask God to just reveal who Jesus is to you. If you spent a year meditating on the first 18 verses, you'd catch a fresh vision of who Jesus is. But read the whole book. It's all good. The conclusion of chapter 28 is, is I think, kind of a wonderful analogy, a parallel 
We don't have time to read it all, but begins this way in verse 23. Give ear, hear my voice, give attention, hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow the ground? No, he levels the surface, then he plants, and he goes on and says, and then you thresh. You see, if you're a good farmer, you do all these things. You, you plow the land, but you don't just keep plowing and plowing and plowing and think something's going to come up, right? That would be foolish. So he says, no, then you level it out. Then you plant, but each kind of plant you plant in a unique way. And then you water, you take care of it, and eventually when it harvests, then you thresh, but you thresh each kind of plant in a different way. And he says at the end of chapter 28, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Farming takes the proper timing. You can't keep plowing. You've got to divide it up just right. So what is Isaiah trying to say to the people through this? Well, you know what? Almost everybody in Israel in those days was a farmer, right? The agrarian culture. And I think the natural response to what Isaiah is saying here is, duh, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Of course, we know how to farm, Isaiah. You're not telling us anything. We've learned it from our fathers. We know how to do it. But that is exactly Isaiah's point. You see, real fruitfulness in life doesn't depend on what we know how to do. It depends on God. And over and over again in that passage, he says it really comes from God. Instruction comes from God. Even the ability to do what you think you know how to do by yourself comes from God. Real fruitfulness in life only comes from surrendering everything to God, even those areas of life where you think you don't need him. Like farming like work, like maybe your family, like whatever it is you think you can handle without God, God's saying, no, that's not true. You need to have a humility that makes you realize that everything you do is dependent on God. And I have found in my life that every area that I thought I was really good at, God has broken me in. He's still in that process. It's not over. But he keeps showing me over and over, you need to depend on me there too not on yourself. You see, the final challenge of this passage is that we are all proud people. We all have areas where we feel like we don't need God and we can handle on our own. And pride is the greatest sin keeping us from real life with God. So are we willing to submit to the king who offers us life and strength, who came to die for us on the cross so that we could be set free from self And learn in humility to depend on him and trust him. You see, the real point of this passage, a humble life is a real fruitful life. And who demonstrated that better than anyone else? Jesus. The king of the universe came in humility, lived in humility, died in humility to show us this is the way to life. Thank you for this powerful passage, Lord, that, again, your word speaks directly to our hearts about who we are. We confess, Lord, that we are proud and self-dependent, that so often we want to run our own lives and just feel good. But, Lord, help us catch 
a clearer, new, fresh, deeper vision of who you are, Lord Jesus. The one who came, Lord of the universe, creator, who came to live and die for us in humility. And may we be people who walk in your steps because we've seen you as you really are. Speak to our hearts. Help us catch a fresh vision of your glory and especially your glorious humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.